You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. The Oscars happened without incident this year. Everything Everywhere All at Once won a whole bunch of Oscars. And life goes on. Today, I'm not hungover the day after St. Patrick's Day as I'm recording this, which feels very adult of me. So I'm bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and let's do this. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got Creed 3. So I don't think I've seen Creed 2, honestly. And I think I saw the first one like super buzzed on a cruise ship six and a half years ago. And I've never actually seen a Rocky film that I can remember. Yes, I know. Rocky is one of my cinema blind spots. It just never really did it for me. In fact, I'm so ignorant to the existence of these films that when the first Creed was coming out and they were doing all the publicity for it, I thought it was a biopic and my friend and my father both made fun of me. That was when I learned that Adonis Creed, not a real dude. No, I didn't think Rocky was a real person. I just always heard the name Adonis Creed and assumed that was a real person. Didn't realize that was somebody Rocky boxed in one of the Rocky movies. That's an oops. Anyway, if you know nothing about these movies, you'll still enjoy it. I never saw the second one. I could pretty much follow it. It's It wasn't rocket science. Not saying that's a bad thing or a good thing. It's just the film was made in such a way where you could walk into this one not having seen the other two or any Rockies. Totally follow what's going on. No problem. It's got a pretty tight script, well-fleshed out characters, and the set design was really, really good. I had a great time. I'm not a sports movie person necessarily. I was I went with my dad because I was torturing him with Oscar movies, so I had to throw him a bone and let him see Creed 3. Because if, if he sat through another movie like Banshees of Inishare, and again, I think he was going to disown me. But, you know, I had a great time. It's not going to change your life, but it was still a good time. I'll watch it again. You won't have to pull my arm to watch it again, which I think is one of the highest compliments you can play a film is, will you watch it again and not shift in your seat or check your phone the whole time? I would. Also, Jonathan Majors is having like quite the ride right now, isn't he? Like he was an Ant-Man. He's in this. He's like the big bad in the Marvel movies coming up here. He's he's doing it right now. And now on to this week's topic. This week, a film that, had it been made, would have arguably changed the way blockbuster films were produced and released. A film that was so far ahead of its time, it never got made. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. In 
November of 2021, a one-of-a-kind book, well, one of an indeterminate number, but definitely less than 20 kinds, of production art was placed up for auction through Christie's, an auction house specializing in art and luxury. The going rate of this book was estimated to be somewhere between 25 to 30,000 euros, but it didn't quite go for that. It actually went for much, much more. This book went for 2.66 million euros. Within this tome's pages were illustrations from famed science fiction artists with images including captions and script dialogue for a film that was never released. What film exactly? Well, it was an attempt to make the 1965 sci-fi classic Dune into a major motion picture. The filmmaker at the helm had been the Chilean-born Alejandro Jodorowsky or Hodorowsky. I heard it pronounced multiple ways. No one's actually sure how to pronounce it, including Hodorowsky, who I heard him say his own name multiple times differently. Um, but I just wanted to mention that right at the top so I don't get bitched at again by people who think I say things wrong when I don't. Language be crazy sometimes. Also, yes, he is Chilean-born, but the last name is not a Latin in origin, which is probably why... There's so many chaotic pronunciations. Anyway, Hodorowski's ambitious plans included a cast boasting David Carradine, Mick Jagger, Orson Welles, and Salvador Dali. Also included were plans for music written by rock bands Magma and Pink Floyd. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves, shall we? Like last week's hero, Alejandro Jodorowsky began his career in the theater, specifically in the avant-garde style. His film career kicked off in 1967 with Fondo y Lis, a film that caused a full-scale riot during its premiere at the Acapulco Film Festival. Unsurprisingly, the film was banned in Mexico after that. Fondo y Lis was about a man and his paraplegic girlfriend traveling a post-apocalyptic wasteland, which featured sequences and characters that were so disturbing they made the film Pink Flamingos by John Waters look tame by comparison. I am a different person than I was before watching clips of that movie. Either of them. Either of those movies. His next film, which he also starred in, was 1970's El Topo. This time, that film got a much different reaction. People actually kind of dug it. In fact, it is considered by many to actually be the first cult film. As for decades, the movie was only shown in the U.S. at midnight screenings, technically making Hodorowsky the father of midnight cinema. Also, John Lennon had loved El Topo so much, he bought the U.S. rights to it and distributed it through the U.S. because he thought everyone should see it. This first wave of career success led to Hodorowsky procuring a million dollars to produce his next film, The Holy Mountain, which continued Hodorowsky's campaign of manic visuals never seen before or frankly since on film. I was partial to the very real iguana dressed as a tiny princess. The Holy Mountain made it all the way to producer Michael Cido in France, where the film had a quite successful run. Honestly, in Europe, the film killed it in general. In Italy, according to the documentary Jodorowsky's Dune, it was the number two highest grossing film of 1974 in Italy, behind only The Man with the Golden Gun, the most recent James Bond picture. Seeing this, Sado called up Jodorowsky and told him to make, quote, whatever he wanted. When asked what that might be, Hodorowsky had an answer. Dune. 
In a world still a few years removed from Star Wars, Hodorowski wanted to make a film that gave viewers the sensation of being on LSD without actually being on LSD. A film that, in his words, would make a, quote, sacred, free, new perspective film that would, quote, open the minds of himself and filmgoers. He also described it as the coming of a god, a, quote, cinematic god. Yodorowsky had actually never read Dune when he said he wanted to make it, but he'd had a friend who loved it, and don't we all? He later said he didn't know what struck him to declare Dune as his choice, even citing the notoriously hard-to-adapt Don Quixote as another option he'd been thinking of. But Dune is what came out of his mouth, so Dune it would be. The filming rights were acquired in December of 1974. If you somehow missed the 2021 adaptation of the novel, well, part of the novel, the basic premise of Dune, written by someone who hasn't read the book and didn't go back and look at a summary, but I have seen two adaptations of it, is this. Dune is about a group of noble houses that take turns basically being in charge of other planets and mining the resources or just like being stewards of planets. The book Dune focuses on Paul Atreides, whose family accepts the stewardship of the planet Arrakis. While at first glance, the planet appears to be just a barren wasteland, the planet turns out to be the only place in the known galaxy where one can find melange, or spice, a drug that extends life and enhances mental abilities, and it's also required for space navigation. As melange can only be produced on Arrakis, control of the planet is a coveted and frankly dangerous posting. Shit goes awry, and Atreides has to make a world for himself outside of the one he's always known. Along the way, he decides that he will hopefully return the control of the spice, and therefore the planet, to Arrakis's native peoples, the Fremen. Michel Sidou flew Hordowski to France to begin working on the script, which of course involved him actually reading and then adapting the over 400-page novel. To house this monumental undertaking, Sado put the director up in a literal castle. He rented a full castle for one dude to write a script. Hodorowski found this to be no easy feat, as the first hundred pages of Dune, to paraphrase him, are pretty much world-building, which works for literature, but you can't spend a super long amount of time at the top of a film explaining what everything in a film is and who everyone is and why this is before then showing you a film. So he had to find ways to integrate this into the script itself in a way that wouldn't have audiences feeling like they were sitting through a presentation about a movie they were about to watch. Some changes that were made between the script and the book included Paul being conceived by a drop of blood instead of by sperm, as in Hodorowski's script, Paul's father had been castrated in ritual combat. To get around this, his mother Jessica, who belongs to a sisterhood of like nun witches called the Bene Gesserit, takes a drop of her lover's blood, turns it into a swimmer, and that fertilizes her egg. The journey of the drop of blood would be shown on screen as it travels inside her. In doing this, Hodorowski changed Paul from a character conceived in physical pleasure, making him one rather of spiritual pleasure. I highly recommend like looking up interviews of this guy. He is a trip. Very passionate. Very, very. He's he's something. Another deviation from the novel is that Paul would die at the end of the film, which doesn't happen in the book. 
says there's a movie coming out, I think next year, that will cover the second half of the Dune book. I'll hold off on spoilers, though I guess Paul not dying is kind of a spoiler. That's a oops. But the ending of Hodorowsky's film is more of spiritual enlightenment than what actually happens in the book. And all of the beings, basically when Paul dies, realize they're part of a bigger spiritual consciousness. In the art created for the film, this moment gives off a lot of like, I am Spartacus vibes. So with this cosmic consciousness being achieved between all peoples, the planet Arrakis for some reason just disappears, which also didn't happen in the book. Hodorowsky had no intention of keeping a lot of the novel's integrity in place and had no problem shaking things up to serve his vision for the film. He was super lean and hard into like the metaphysical spiritual stuff, which there is an element of in the book as far as I'm aware, but it's certainly not like the forefront. It's it's a very complex novel from from what I do know, but this is definitely not like the main focus. I could be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I the synopses I've read and the things that I've been made aware of it, it, it doesn't feel like that's the, the main focus. Once the script was completed, Hodorowsky needed to find his, quote, spiritual warriors, a.k.a. his design team, which he called spiritual warriors. He really likes like the motif of spiritualism and warriors. You'll hear those words a lot coming up here. So first on board was famed comic book artist Jean Giraud, whom went by the pen name Mobius. At the time, he was arguably the most famous comic book artist in France. Together, the two of them created over 3,000 images of storyboarding, capturing shot by shot what Hodorowsky had in mind for his camera angles. Even though they are quick pencil sketches, the images I saw of these storyboards are some of the most detailed I've seen as far as capturing a director's vision. It's literally like the dude had already edited the entire film in his mind, which, you know, would be frustrating for the editor, but that never happens, so we don't have to worry about that today. Mobius also created costume sketches for Hodorowsky, which were far more vibrant than anything you've seen in any of the Dune adaptations that have actually been made. Hodorowsky planned to start the film with this super ambitious long shot, which started with the camera showing an entire galaxy, then pushing in through the stars and planetary systems, showing spaceships being raided by pirates as we fly by, just other general space chaos, asteroids, what have you, before landing on what looked like a space hearse, on the back of which lay several dead spice smugglers. And the doc Hodorowsky's Dune, the filmmakers animated the storyboards, and it's an incredible impressive sight to behold a very ambitious sequence even though like you're just seeing the pencil drawings that they've animated and like done like 3d stuff with and it's super cool there's similar shots have been done now that computers are more regularly available and it's a more common thing to use but there was not a snowball's chance in hell that shot could have been achieved with the technology of 1975 it just was not there yet but that wasn't going to stop our dude Hodorowsky. He and Mobius flew to Hollywood in search of a VFX artist who might be able to do this and all of the other ideas that they had. The duo met with Douglas Trumbull, who was probably the best VFX artist in the world at this time. Trumbull had just been responsible for the seamless effects in 1968's 2001 A Space Odyssey, so if anyone could make these grand visions come to cinematic life, it was probably him. But Trumbull was a little too Hollywood for Hodorowsky, and the director wasn't into the ego and quote-unquote vanity that Trumbull emitted during their meeting, which also featured Trumbull apparently answering the phone 40 times by Hodorowsky's estimation. So it was a Hollywood meeting. <laughs> through and through. Even back then. 
At the end of the meeting, to Mobius's surprise, Hodorowski decided not to hire Trumbull. He just wasn't a spiritual warrior. And that was a reason given by him in the documentary. As Mobius and Hodorowski ambled through Hollywood post-meeting, Mobius and Hodorowski decided to catch a movie. In this case, it was the 1974 indie film Dark Star, a sci-fi comedy that launched several careers, including that of horror master John Carpenter. His co-producer on that film had also done the VFX, and his name was Dan O'Bannon. Upon meeting O'Bannon, Hodorowski and he got very high. O'Bannon agreed to do the VFX for the film, and his new boss told him to sell all his shit and move to Paris, which he did. Chris Foss, a London-based artist, was hired to design the spaceships. Foss had made a career for himself illustrating a series of magnificent spacecraft for a bunch of 1970s-released sci-fi novels, including a series of Isaac Asimov republications. When Hodorowski had seen his work, production flew him out to Paris to meet them. This first meeting included Foss sitting in a room watching Hodorowski's The Holy Mountain. The scene that he remembered most from that from that screening was Hodorowski's character excreting a golden turd. Yep, told you the visuals were crazy. But before you knew it, despite despite the reservations, Foss was a member of this weird culty crew. The final member of the Spiritual Warriors on the design side was H.R. Geiger, whose best-known work would soon include the Xenomorph from Alien. When Hodorowski met him, however, he'd never worked on a film, but was an up-and-comer in the art world. His works often featured man and machine morphed together to create macabre imagery. Hodorowski referred to it as a, quote, ill art. He was perfect to design the looks of the clan Harkonnen, with whom the Atreides clan has a long-standing feud. So, you got your design people in line. Now, who's going to play all these people? So, when it came to casting, Hodorowski wanted one of the day's biggest television stars, David Carradine, who was currently starring in Kung Fu on ABC. He would be Duke Leto, who was Paul Atreides' father. When Carradine heard that Hodorowski wanted him for a film, he got a hold of him. When the two first met, Carradine apparently chugged an entire bottle of vitamin E pills Hodorowski had in his hotel room, as one does. To play the lead Paul, Hodorowski cast his own 12-year-old son named Brontis, who previously appeared in El Topo beside his father. He told Brontis that he would have to prepare as a warrior and train in martial arts and also become intellectually more advanced than he was in that moment. Hodorowski and the film's stunt coordinator, Jean-Pierre Vigneault, began training Brontis. Vigneault and Brontis trained together for six hours a day, every day for two years. Salvador Dali was cast as the emperor of this world, Shaddam IV, which would have been his only speaking film role had this movie been made. Dali agreed on the condition he be paid $100,000 per hour of work. They managed to negotiate him down to $100,000 per minute he was on screen, which would have been no more than three to five minutes. He also made Hodorowski chase him around Europe before he finally agreed. One of the only reasons he did agree was in part due to the input of Dali's muse at the time, Amanda Lear, whom Hodorowski would cast as Princess Irulan. Mick Jagger and Udo Kerr were also brought on as members of the Harkonnen tribe. Hodorowski wanted Orson Welles to play the leader of the Harkonnens, a being so bulbous he had to be carried around with anti-gravity plates. 
35 years had passed since we dealt with him last week, and Orson had definitely seen better days. He was beyond morbidly obese, arguably a bit of a drunk, and made quite bitter by his treatment by people in an industry he still devoted quite a lot of his energy to, despite having left Hollywood more or less in the rear view decades earlier. Hodorowski managed to track him down at a restaurant in Paris and offered to hire the chef of that restaurant to be on set every day during filming so Orson never missed his favorite meal. Orson agreed. When it came to the music, the Atreides family music would be composed by Pink Floyd. Yes, the band. The Harkonnens family music would be written by the Parisian band Magma. Of course, they never got too far into that process, but both bands were signed on and had agreed to do this. It bears mentioning, I feel, at this juncture to address the fact that this film would have never made it as far as it had, had it not been for Hodorowski's charisma. Several of the artists interviewed used words like guru to describe him. Like I said, it gave off kind of culty vibes. Foss would praise him for his ability to unlock creative depths he'd never been able to reach before, which is nice. But beyond all the wheeling and dealing and promises being made and the art being created, there were hell of problems that were beginning to rear their ugly heads, beginning with the fact, and it's a big one, that they didn't have enough money to even make this movie. By the time the adults started getting involved in what he was doing, Hodorowski had already spent $2 million of the initial agreed-upon $9.5 million budget for the film, and it was probably going to cost a lot more, so they needed to find someone who would put up that money. Taking all of the artwork his spiritual warriors had conjured up, Hodorowski compiled it all into a thick tome in the hopes of taking that to Hollywood and getting further investors to jump on board. Hodorowski and his French producers believed if the studios were presented with such a clear, concise vision of what they had in mind, that this would be an easy feat. They're like, oh, clearly they've thought this out. Let's give them five million dollars. And that's all they needed. They needed about five, five and a half-ish million dollars to get this film fully financed, which is, you know, 33% of the budget. So doesn't seem like a lot of money. It was a lot of quite a bit of money in the 1970s. Disney, of all places, agreed to see them first, guessing they hadn't seen Hodorowsky's previous work. Well impressed with what they were presented with, the studio said no. This was way too out of left field for the studio. That's a whole brand was more or less content that skewed more towards families and children and younger people. This movie probably wasn't going to be that for them. And, you know, it went more the same at every other studio in town that would see them. Cool book, bro. Love your designs. But there's no way in hell we can help make this movie. This isn't surprising given where we're at in film history at this time. The studios were fighting a rocky battle against TV while the old guard was being pushed out of their studios and replaced with corporate figureheads who were more concerned about making money than making art. It just wasn't the time to take a risk on this crazy metaphysical adaptation of a sci-fi novel. Also, and frankly most importantly, most if not all were put off by Hodorowsky himself. Based on the scope of the film and an era where visual effects were just starting to enter filmmaking in a larger way, producers were wary to commit to a film they were pretty sure was going to go vastly over budget, for what it's worth, I agree, as they believed that Hodorowsky couldn't handle the actual production of a film this size. It was one thing to be able to commission sketches and drawings and what have you and to have a vision. It's another thing entirely to be able to lead a crew of hundreds of people to actually get a film made. Those are two completely different skills. 
Oh, and remember that's Grant's? Yeah, there's some things I didn't mention earlier. When Dune author Frank Herbert saw it for the first time, he thought Hodorowsky's script resembled a phone book more than a screenplay. That phone book, as it was, would have likely yielded a 14-hour film, which Hodorowsky saw no problem with. But that's most directors for you. If they could make 10-hour movies, they'd do it. It's called TV, guys. It's okay. Hollywood didn't want a 14-hour film. They wanted it a smidge closer to 90 minutes, which Hodorowsky was adamantly against. He thought it should be 20 hours if he thought it needed to be. So, yeah. Finally, despite the fact that he'd adapted someone else's book to make this beast, he would not let anyone try to rein in his vision, even if that meant not getting the financing of his film. While some people, namely Nicholas Winding Refn, director of the film Drive, claimed that Hodorowsky and the producers couldn't get the financing for Dune because Hollywood was scared of him, the fact of the matter was, in my opinion, and based on everything I learned about this dude in the last couple of weeks, is that his style of filmmaking was just far too chaotic for the Hollywood machine, especially that era when a single film could and did tank entire studios. Yes, art is an important part of filmmaking, but commerce also has to be considered. It's the devil to art's angel on your shoulders. Even with CGI in its current heyday, I still don't think this film would never have been made if someone like Khodorovsky was at the helm. It's a hard truth, but them's the break sometimes. I think Khodorovsky is a magnificent artist. His visuals are incredible. His camera work is revolutionary. But I wouldn't trust that dude with $15. Forget $15 million. Money meant nothing to him back then. It still doesn't. And while it's a romantic notion to just not care about money, you can't make a film without money. And 99.9% of the time, you're going to need someone else's money to make a movie. And if they think you're unhinged and crazy, unless they're unhinged and crazy too, they ain't giving you money. That's just how it works. And finally, before I jump off this soapbox, there has to be a sense of responsibility within the filmmaker, in addition to, you know, servicing their art, to be aware of the money they're spending. Your art is not made in a bubble, though sometimes when you are making a movie, especially if you're shooting and on set and you're somewhere, you know, away from home, it can certainly feel that way. But your film doing well or not affects other people's livelihoods and other filmmakers' budgets. And while that's probably not at the forefront of your mind, nor should it be, it should be knocking around in your noggin somewhere. Your responsibility as a modern filmmaker should not be limited to just what you want. At the end of the day, Hodorowsky's film was just too avant-garde and ahead of its time on the VFX front to get made in 1974-1975. Despite Hodorowsky's passion for his art, it just wasn't going to happen. The film shut down once the previs was complete, as the only thing to do next was to actually start building sets. But they didn't have the money to get everything they needed done, so there was no point in even starting. After the shutdown of Hodorowsky's Dune, the rights for filming the novel were sold to Dino De Laurentiis, whom had hired David Lynch to direct the film that ultimately came out in 1984. Hodorowsky, though hurt that he was not the one to bring Dune to the big screen, was convinced to see the film by his sons. When he saw it, he was thrilled because he thought it was hot garbage. Not his words. My adaptation of his words. 
According to Hodorowski's Dunes producers, the giant tomes they'd handed out at the studio meetings made the rounds, inspiring several films that came out in the ensuing years. This included Star Wars, namely the lightsaber battles in the first one, the Terminator, the POV of the robots they believe got lifted from the storyboards, the palace interiors of 1980s Flash Gordon and some of the costumes all were inspired from images in that book. They made some other claims to other ones as well, but those were the three that I thought they could make the best arguments for, in my opinion. There were other claims, like including Raiders of the Lost Ark, but the things they claimed in Raiders of the Lost Ark, I definitely saw in pre-1975 films. So I kind of was like, you're just you're just stretching. You're just stretching there a little bit. The big one that was pretty much a one-on-one copy was the Harkonnen Palace that Geiger had originally designed for Dune. It's actually realized in Prometheus from 2012, but it was based on Geiger's art, and he'd worked on Alien, to which Prometheus is a sequel. So I don't think that's so much a copy as using the art of the artist that did the thing. Speaking of Alien, Geiger and Mobius worked on the film Alien a few years later after the shutdown of Dune as they'd been hired by Dan O'Bannon, who was supposed to do VFX on this film, and he had written the story for Alien. Geiger won an Oscar for his work with the VFX team. An argument can be made that while this version of Dune never got produced, its influence did carry on and inspire future sci-fi films, whether through alleged sneaky peeks at the fabled book or through the work of the artists that had spent time working with Hodorowsky. It would take Hodorowsky six years before he could release another film, and this was a children's fable called Tusk, which shot in India. The film showed little of the director's outlandish visual styles and was never given a wide release. Hodorowsky and Mobius would take many of the images from their work on Dune to create the comic book The Incal in 1980, and it was a space opera about a fantastic interstellar voyage. The two actually later sue Luc Besson, accusing him of lifting elements of The Incal to make the fifth element, but they did lose that court case. Hodorowsky also teamed up with an Argentine artist named Juan Jimenez to make the Meta Barons, which used many of the spaceship designs from Dune. Also included in Meta Barons was a castrated hero whose partner manages to make him a kid via a drop of blood. As of 2013, Hodorowsky still holds out hope that someone will make his picture, whether in his lifetime or not. In 2021, the first big-budget adaptation of Dune hit the big screen, and for the first time, an adaptation of the novel was widely well-received. That same year, one of the fabled Dune tomes was purchased by a collective of fans using crypto blockchain stuff, which was organized into a DAO, which stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. This is basically an organization constructed by rules, encoded as a computer program, and is controlled by the organization's members and not influenced by a central government. It's okay, I don't get it either, and no crypto bros, I've had enough men talk at me about this stuff. I'm good. I'm just okay with not understanding it. But basically, it's a way they all got together, they pooled their money, they bought the Dune book. It's not been made public knowledge what they're planning on doing with the book or just to have it or whatever, but they may potentially try to make the proposed film from within its pages. This could mark a potential shift in how films get made. Perhaps somewhere down the line, it might be possible for fans to pull money together to make films, like in a more elaborate version of a Kickstarter, and they can make art that they would like to see that maybe, you know, the film industry doesn't want to take the risk on. 
Of course, in the case of Dune, it'll be a tad tricky as it's not clear who has the copyright of the images. And of course, they need the book rights as well. And I'm guessing Warner's got a pretty tight grasp on those right now. So who knows what'll happen with that? But there is a glimmer of hope that maybe this greatest film never made might one day still get made. As of this recording, Jodorowsky is still around. The dude is 94, and he's going to be, I think, 95 next month, and is still trying to make movies. Currently, he is trying to get funding for his film The Son of El Topo, and he has been trying to get this funding since 2016. While Jodorowsky's Dune might never reach the silver screen in his lifetime, the effects this project had on the artist he'd employed sent ripples through the film industry. While there may be more madness to the director's method, one thing is for certain. Modern cinematic sci-fi would look very different without him. And a word to the wise, maybe don't leave a book with all your really good ideas with people who love to take other people's ideas. that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a Letterboxd account, which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you please rate, review, and subscribe so other people can find me, that would be a huge help. Um, I'd still appreciate some Apple podcast love. Um, if you don't mind, that would be super helpful and awesome. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee. I actually forgot to drink coffee today and I'm recording at 3 p.m. because I was very sleepy this morning because I was hanging out with friends and I couldn't get the extroverted energy out. So I was out late and I actually took a nap before I started recording. I also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, I'm deciding on a couple different ones. I've got like three half written. So I'll finish one of those. And I might even do a little hodgepodge just because I'm being indecisive and there's not a lot of info about some of these. But you'll see. You'll see next week. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. <laughs>